All right. Before I get started, I actually have to preface this entire episode with something I forgot to announce. Leave it to me to record, edit, and get ready to release an episode and realize I forgot an important piece of information. You may have already noticed that the Insight episodes that have been on the feed are disappearing, and that's only because I'm moving them. They're not gone. I didn't delete them. They are now on their own feed. So this feed will just be Crime Lines and Insight will have its own feed with all the episodes so people can binge the entire show start to finish. If you want to listen to the old Insight episodes, just search for Insight in your favorite podcast app and subscribe there. If for some reason you can't find it, you can email me at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com and I will do my best to get it into your pod catcher of choice. So with that little bit filled in, here is the rest of 2019's Out With The Old, In With The New. Hey there, this is a little bonus episode of Crime Lines to sort of recap 2019 and get 2020 off to the right start. I put out a call for questions, and I think I'm going to get to most of them in this episode. I'm going to first kind of talk a little bit about 2019. Then I'm going to make an announcement for a very exciting change for 2020, and then we'll get to the questions. So let's take a minute to look at 2019. This has been, podcasting-wise, an absolutely bananas year with some truly awful lows and some how is this even my life highs. Insight ending, obviously a low. Among the highs, I got to do a live show in Chicago at the True Crime Podcast Festival with my husband Lars, host of Rusty Hinges, and then Aaron from Generation Y messaged me and asked if I wanted to do a live show with him and Justin in early 2020. Those were incredible high points. 2019 actually started at a high point. I had just launched my freelance podcast writing career. I was writing for Parcast. Well, at this point, I think I just signed my contract and I was getting ready to start writing for them. My husband had launched a really fun podcast that I was writing for called Rusty Hinges. I had recently found a really great daycare for my youngest after I worked in sight around being a stay-at-home mom of little kids for years. Insight was growing and we were actually making money, not full-time quit your job and retire money, but definitely more than we had ever made before. And I felt like I was actually being fairly compensated for the amount of work I was doing. Podcasting had made that leap from hobby to career. Obviously, all high points. But then, about five or six weeks into the year, I found out that Insight was falling apart from the inside. I debated airing the whole story of how and why Insight ended today because it was by far the most popular question sent in. But in the end, I decided it's not fair. It's not fair for me 
to air my side on a platform that only I have access to. I could say anything I wanted here without challenge, and that's just not me. If you want to know what happened, you can Google it. There is a Reddit thread that is more or less accurate, and that'll pop up for you. Honestly, why Insight ended is a bit of a besides the point for me at this stage. The aftermath of it ending was a little bit harder. I felt so bad about disappointing the listeners. The ending of Thinking Sideways was still fresh for me. As a listener, I was so sad when the show ended. And so I kept thinking about that and kept thinking about how disappointing it is for a listener when you've invested years into listening to a show. And that's not to say shows need to go on forever or they owe us, the listeners, anything. But still, as a listener, I knew what that felt like. And I wanted to thank everyone who reached out. Even those of you who said you were disappointed the show is ending, you were so kind. And I really appreciate that you made this very difficult situation easier. I know it may have seemed a little jarring for me to announce Insight is ending, period, show is over, and then coming back about a month later with a new announcement saying, just kidding, the show's just changing and rebranding, and I'm staying. Now, the answer to what happened in those few weeks is a few things. First, the legal considerations cleared. That's always something you need to figure out when you're in business with someone else. And ownership isn't entirely clear. Second, I had some podcast friends who told me that I would regret giving it up. I needed to take time to let my emotions settle before deciding what to do. These friends were both kind in their message, but also a little tough love there, where they're like, if you give up this feed, if you give up your show, I will find you. <laughs> so I actually appreciate that because they made me realize what a big deal it was to just let my show go, to let go of what I had been working so hard on. But the third piece, the last thing that came in that made me actually say, okay, let's do it, let's keep it going, was the listener response to the Insight episode that I hosted by myself. I wasn't supposed to host it solo. At the very last minute, I didn't have a co-host. By last minute, I mean it was Thursday, and the episode was scheduled to go up on Patreon the next morning. I either had to flake on our patrons and our listeners or I had to record it by myself. I don't like flaking, so I decided to just record the whole thing myself. I edited it, and then I posted it. Aside from talking too fast, the feedback on that episode was unbelievable. I had no idea people would respond so well to me as a solo host. Message after message just encouraged me to keep going, keep the show going. And that feedback is what created Crime Lines. Had the scheduled host not been unable to record in time for the episode's release, I don't know that I would have started Crime Lines. Elizabeth sent in a question asking whether I preferred a co-host or if I like hosting the show on my own. 
I was surprised to learn back when I did that Insight episode on my own that I actually preferred it solo. I really liked how it sounded. When I write my scripts, I speak them in my mind. I want them to sound a certain way. With a co-host, even if they deliver the script perfectly, it's never the same way it sounded in my head. I like to hear my words sound the way I wrote them. So in that way, I've really liked working solo. Allian asked if it was hard to transition from having a co-host to doing the show solo. It was hard, but not on the hosting side. That has been fine. Honestly, listening back, looking back, Allie and I were mismatched in our delivery styles. And the feedback I've gotten since starting Crime Lines has echoed that. If you have a co-hosted show, you either have to both be conversational or you have to both be more narratory. The back and forth between the styles just doesn't flow the same. So in that way, the transition wasn't hard. It was actually easier almost. But the part that was hard to adjust to was the behind the scenes work. Insight only released three episodes and one short episode in the Patreon feed per month. I researched and wrote every other episode. So some months I was only writing one full length script and one short one. That's frankly not a lot of work. I was able to do it when my kids were in bed at night. I mean, it was after chasing them around all day, so I was very tired, but Insight was solidly a hobby commitment, time-wise. Going solo, I had to ask myself if I could literally double my workload, and I wasn't sure I could. So for some inexplicable reason, I decided to not only double my workload, but add an extra episode a month to Crime Lines so the show was truly weekly rather than taking a break once a month. Thankfully, I have Haley and Jess each researching an episode per month for me, which saves me hours and hours of time. I mean, Crime Lines is still more work for me than Insight was, but they make it doable. I also have Chez from Gray Multimedia who helps edit an episode here and there, which really helps me out when I'm in a pinch. When I was really in the depths of freelance writing, he ended up doing quite a few episodes for me. By November 2019, I was succeeding at Crime Lines, and I was succeeding in my freelance writing career, but it was coming at a pretty big cost. I was burning the candle at both ends to try to keep everything together. And then my husband's job was like, hey, we need you to travel more in 2020. And then my two-year-old decided some developmental milestones were optional. So now we have a weekly therapy appointment to fit in. We have my husband going out of town. And I knew it was just going to push any balance I had completely out of whack. And I didn't really have great balance to begin with. So I decided this is just not my season to take on so much freelance work. I really needed to focus on my family and also on the shows I'm creating, like Crime Lines, Rusty Hinges, and if the FBI ever sends me my FOIA request, impact statement. But once I got Crime Lines going, it reminded me how much I loved podcasting, which is something that had dimmed without me even realizing it when I was still working on Insight. I can, in hindsight, 
pinpoint some things that were dragging me down. And that helped because I made sure I didn't bring those with me into crime lines. And putting all the crap aside, I really love hosting a show. I love being able to take things a little deeper than I did on Insight. Once I was able to set my own vision for the show and the types of stories I wanted to tell, I fell in love with it again. And there are some real benefits to having full control over something you're creating. So yes, adjusting to doing the show largely on my own was rough and it was a process, but it was definitely worth it. So that's 2019, a year of chaos and a year of rough transitions. So let's look at 2020. I know curveballs will come, but I'm keeping my focus on creating. I want to make the show better. I want better content. I want better audio. I want better whatever I can figure out that will make it better. One fairly minor change is that the show will go back to releasing on Mondays. Insight used to always release on Mondays. We changed it to Sunday this year, and now I'm changing it back. Episodes will still be up on Patreon on Saturday, but this Monday release just gives me more time to do the admin stuff, the social media promotion that follows an episode release and do it without taking it away from my weekend time with my family. But the biggest change for next year is the most exciting. Crime Lines will be releasing an extra episode every month in 2020. That's right. After I told you how overworked I am, I'm now going to announce that every third Thursday of the month, I will be releasing episodes featuring missing or murdered Indigenous women. These will be in the main feed, not behind a paywall. Everyone always asks for more of these stories, and I want to tell them. But I knew if I was going to tell them on the regular like this, I needed to not tell the community stories for them, but rather with them. At the same time I was thinking about that, I was contacted by a listener named Annie. In addition to being a member of the Suquamish tribe, she works, studies, and researches criminal justice issues within Indigenous communities. She wanted to offer her expertise to the show. A few emails and a phone call later, I hired her on as a researcher, and our third Thursday episodes were born. My dream for Annie is for her to have her own show one day to take on these stories. Not only is she the right person to tell these stories, but the second I got her on the phone, I realized her voice quality is perfect for podcasting. She has the right voice in all ways for this. But we're working one step at a time. Hopefully, Annie and I working together will get these stories out there while we also build a platform for them to be told more broadly. 2019, the year of upheaval. 2020, the year of content creation. To help balance all of this before anyone worries I'm headed for burnout, I will be taking a Monday release off every eight weeks. This week off will be the week that I catch up on admin, business stuff like bookkeeping, you know, paying my taxes, little things like that. I'll be writing scripts to get ahead for those inevitable snow days, school breaks, and sick kid moments that always seem to sneak up on me. 
I really think the stress of constantly having the next deadline right in my face is why I've gotten every cold my kids have brought home this year and why my joints are flaring up more than they have in the last couple of years. I am feeling the effects of this mental stress and this pressure that I understand I largely put on myself. And I think taking off one week every couple of months from releasing content will really relieve a lot of that. Okay, so enough whining about my joints like the old lady I aspire to be. Let's get to some questions. These were really interesting to think about, but it was also interesting to see what you guys were interested in hearing about. Daniel and Tiffany both asked how my husband Lars, the host of Rusty Hinges, and I met. Daniel also followed it up with how we ended up in Kansas City. Lars and I met at college. I had five roommates, and we kind of hung out in a larger social group for a while. Then Lars and one of the other male friends in the group coordinated this big group date. So it was my roommates, the six of us, and a bunch of guys from their dorm. And in the process, Lars set himself up with me. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, hey, look at that. So after that, we started dating and people thought we were pranking them when they found out we were dating because we are so dissimilar and they couldn't believe it. Lars is introverted and artistic. I am neither of those things. We grew up very differently in very different areas. He was an art major. I was a science major. So on the surface, we didn't seem to be a very great match. But here we are 21 something, maybe years of marriage later. We definitely have six kids. And I think that proves that we're at least not a terrible match. We ended up in Kansas City when Lars got a job offer after college. We were living in Tulsa at the time, and I was really ready to go somewhere else. Tulsa was so, so different from where I grew up. I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut. It was a really hard adjustment to move regions like that. And Kansas City is more of a city city. So it has those elements of Midwestern nice, which I very much liked in Tulsa. But we also have enough rude people to make me feel like I'm at home. If Kansas City had mountains, beaches, or was closer to my family, it would literally be the perfect place. Amy asked how I got into podcasting, and the short story is that I had homeschooled my older four kids for about a decade at that point when they ended up all in school trying it out, and it left me home alone with a two-year-old. Homeschooling is a lot of work, especially the way I did it. Not only was I providing education to my children, I was also running or helping run three different co-op groups at any one time. I was organizing weekly park days. I was planning field trips. I had a lot going on. I'm the type of person who likes to have a lot going on. But then I dropped my kids off at school and all of it was pretty much done. I was home with a toddler and I was ready for that. I thought, this will be great. We'll play blocks. We'll play cars. I'll watch some daytime TV. I'll maybe even keep my house clean. And that lasted about a week. 
By the third week, I was so bored and I realized I just I'm one of those people. I need a project. So I Googled how to start a podcast. I basically had no knowledge of how to do this. But within a month, I had a podcast up and I interviewed writers about their process. And I'm so thankful for all 90 people who listened to it. At the time, I was listening to almost all true crime podcasts. So I decided after several months to start one and have my husband, Lars, as my co-host. I named it Crime Lines. Two or three episodes in, Insight happened. And once Insight came about, I dropped the other projects. When Insight started, there were actually three of us. Me, Allie, and Tim. Tim had another podcast called The History Dweebs. Because of that audience, Insight grew really quickly. So it made it kind of an easy pick, focus on the bigger show. Tim ended up dropping out three episodes in because of his day job requirements, but Allie and I continued it. So let's fast forward to the end of Insight, and I'm looking to start a solo show. I couldn't come up with a name because I'm terrible about naming things, and I remembered I actually had crime lines still kicking around. I had a logo, I had the name, and that's pretty much all I needed. So Lars altered the colors on the logo he had originally made. We needed to make it look a little bit more serious, and then the show was born. As for Rusty Hinges, Lars and I wanted a project to do together that did not involve our children. I already had the idea for the show, and he seemed like a really great host. He has a really great voice. He's pretty much only a podcaster because I dragged him into it. But once he got into it, he's really good at it and he really likes it. So it ended up working out. Cassie asked me about the process I go through from idea to research to scripting and how much I ad lib versus read the script. I'll answer the second part first. I ad lib almost nothing. Unless what I wrote down doesn't sound good once I'm recording, I'm pretty much reading verbatim from my script. I have tried to do more of an outline, more of a freeform thing, but I end up repeating myself way too much. As a listener, I really like tight narratives. And the best way for me to deliver that is a script. About my process, I have a spreadsheet of episode suggestions and cases I've come across. If you send me a case suggestion, it goes on that sheet. When it comes to picking what case to do next, I try to pick something that's not like anything I've done very recently. So I'll try not to do two missing kid cases in a row. But sometimes I seem to get to where I keep being drawn to the same type of case, and I'm okay with that. I think right now I'm very stuck in the woman vanishes and husband slash boyfriend is the main suspect unsolved cases, which there are a lot of those. But looking at the main feed and the Patreon feed, so many of them are those right now. I'll probably take a break from doing any like that for the next few weeks. But I'll just kind of look at what the case is about. I'll read a quick wrap up on it, whether Wikipedia or a Medium article. Those generally give me the broad strokes of the case and I can tell if it'll be a good fit, if it's something I'm interested in working on right now. If there's a Wikipedia article, sometimes I'll scroll to the bottom and look at their list of sources. Those are pretty good. 
it's always funny when you click the link because it'll often contradict what the wiki article actually says, but the links themselves are really helpful. I also just do a general Google search and I take notes from web-based articles or any documentaries or news programs I can find. And then I go into the newspaper archives at newspapers.com. They should honestly sponsor the podcast because I tell everybody to get a newspapers.com subscription if they are a podcaster. This lets me see if there are any old articles that were in print that aren't digitized on a website. And I have found so many really great details in these archives. And that also helps me take a case that may look really short at first glance and make it a full-length episode. Because these summary articles you find on the internet aren't the whole story. Sometimes you can find the case in the newspaper and follow it day by day as a search happens, as the police talk to suspects, as the community and the neighborhood and the family react to what's happening. Things you can't find through a basic Google search. If there is a book on the case, I read it last. And this is a tip that my researcher Haley gave me. If you read the book first, it's often so comprehensive that you end up giving your listeners a book report. Even if you are not interviewing police and family members, it's important as a podcaster to curate the information yourself. When I sit down to write the episode, I have my notes in front of me. I've generally moved them around so that they're in chronological order because I do follow a timeline. That's the point of the show, crime lines. I walk through things in order. So the structure is pretty easy to write for. And I've been writing for my own voice for so long, it goes pretty fast. And the reason I structure it this way is that I want the casual podcast listener who is doing a million other things while listening to me to be able to follow along. But I also know it needs to be interesting enough for the detailed listener. So I'm constantly working on my delivery. What I want this to sound like to you is that I'm telling you a story over coffee, not I'm reading you my end of term report. Along the lines of selecting cases, both Katie and Stephanie asked how far in advance I schedule. I have a schedule going out two months, but I consider it pretty dynamic. Sometimes a different case will catch my attention and I'll move things around. Right now, my January schedule, as in the episode coming out next week, has already been moved. I thought I'd have more time during the holidays to research than I ended up having because of sick kids and holidays and whatnot. So I'm using work that my researcher sent me earlier in the month than I originally planned. And then the stuff I planned to be researching right now, I'll do in the beginning of January, and you'll hear those episodes towards the end of the month. But I'm not someone who can pick what I'm doing next week, just every week. I need a roadmap. I need to know what I'm working on next. So if I do have some downtime where I don't really feel like writing and I don't need to record and everything's edited, 
I know what I can start researching on the side to get where I need to be. So it helps me be more productive. Liz asked me about my thoughts on plagiarism and citing sources in the podcast space as it's come up a lot in the past several months. And I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think we need to remember first that plagiarism would get you fired from pretty much any other job. So that tells us that it's a big deal and it's wrong. Yet it seems to get shrugged off in indie creator spaces like blogs, YouTube, and yes, podcasts. I think it takes the entire field down a few notches on the rungs of professionalism in other people's eyes, and that affects everyone in the indie creator space, not just the ones plagiarizing. People who spend their time creating content should not only be credited for their work, but they shouldn't have to listen to their words coming out of someone else's mouth. Yes, even if you tell everyone where you got the info from, it's still plagiarism if you copy it. The word-for-word plagiarism happens a lot less often than other forms of plagiarism. Structural plagiarism is a pretty, pretty big deal. And that's basically giving a chapter-by-chapter book report script. And that's not okay. Taking a long-form article and lightly rewording it paragraph by paragraph is not okay. Taking a documentary and summing up each section in order is not okay. When you do research for a podcast, using existing sources, you need to extract facts and then write from your notes. You extract only the facts. You leave the structure, you leave motifs, you leave analogies alone. Those aren't yours. Those belong to the writer. Another no-no that happens a lot is what I've heard the host of the Accused podcast, Amber Hunt, call rip and reads. I tend to call them over-reliance on a single source. When someone spends four years researching and writing an investigative true crime book and someone sums it up, without adding anything new to it, that's also plagiarism. I know in my past I have crossed the line with this over-reliance of a single source before. As an experienced podcaster, I am currently crossing the line with citing sources because I am very bad about updating my website. I tend to do it in batches. You could email me and ask me for my sources on any Crime Lines episode, and I will send them to you because they're right there. It's transferring it from my notes to the website that I'm not doing consistently. And frankly, it's not acceptable. I don't accept it of myself. The podcast community, my fellow creators, they shouldn't accept me being lazy about crediting sources either. It's absolutely something I'm changing in 2020. And the website will have sources up to date when the episodes drop. So, okay, let's sum up my thoughts on plagiarism and citing sources. Podcasters as an industry, we have a lot of growth to do. I think we need to tackle the lightly rewarding crowd first and then worry about the over-reliance on a single source people. But there are still people reading verbatim. Something that... I think we learn is wrong the second we learn how to write. I don't know 
when or if that will change unless the original content creators, the people who actually own this work, start consistently sending takedown notices and honestly pursuing legal action. On a personal level, I don't get this blatant plagiarism because for me, making a podcast is about creating something and copying someone else's words is not creating anything. It makes me question the podcaster's priorities, their values, and their motives for being in the space. I think bigger podcasts need to lead by example. I heard from a small podcast a couple months ago that they didn't realize they couldn't read an article verbatim and riff on it because big shows do it all the time. Not only do they do it, but they sell out tours, even after getting caught. And I don't know what to say to that, because in the end, it's up to the listeners who are buying show tickets and listening to these podcasts. Because let's pull back the curtain for a second. Listeners control the bottom line. Ad revenue is determined by the number of listeners, even if you never buy a single thing using the show's discount code. There is a dollar sign attached to each listen. If someone listens to a show that is plagiarized, they are literally supporting that show. Just like we vote with our dollars, you have to vote with your listen. That is the power you, the listener, have. Okay, and now you guys can see why I am scripted, because as soon as I decide to ad-lib a little, I ramble. So let's move on to some questions about cases I've covered and just get off this topic entirely. Julie asked about the Judy Smith case. She wondered if it was possible that this was a paid hit in the sense that Judy went to Philadelphia and someone had been paid to meet her there and convince her to go to North Carolina and make sure she never returned. Julie also points out that this idea of an abduction by force would be hard because they would have to keep her subdued all the way there without risking an escape and really from the car or from the hiking trail. Something that happens a lot after I write an episode, I think about it a lot, I rehearse it, then I record it, then I edit it, then I proof listen and I send it out is I've heard this information a lot. So by the end, sometimes my episode's already outdated on my thoughts. Now for me, the more I've listened to it and processed it, I think the hiking clothes are telling me that Judy went to North Carolina voluntarily. Like Julie said, I mean, I can't rule out a ruse. Maybe she went under false pretenses. But if this was a ruse, what I can't figure out here is what would you use to get someone to leave behind most of their belongings, not call their children, buy new clothes, and go on a hike? I just don't know what that scenario would look like. And the investigation of this case did look into finances. And so they definitely didn't find anything on her husband's side to indicate he paid anyone, but I don't know who else would have. The Judy Smith case is one of the most puzzling ones I've covered. And that leads me to Heather's question about what unsolved case would I want solved? And I almost want to say Judy's, just because I want to know what happened. How did this play out? Every theory I have about how it could have happened has some hole. I can't figure out anything where all the pieces fit. But 
I would say that right now, I would love for the Mary Boyle case to be solved. She's the little girl who went missing in Ireland, and her twin sister Anne believes someone close to the family did it. I can't say who. No one can because of Irish libel laws. But the reason I want it solved is because Anne and her mother are estranged right now. And honestly, it doesn't look like a reconciliation is coming because they don't agree on the conclusions in this case. Neither one of them can make peace with the other one's opinions or their actions regarding the case. I think an answer would be the first step for this family to mend fences. As much as every victim deserves justice and every family deserves answers, a family that is fractured because of the lack of an answer really breaks my heart in another way entirely. And I'd really want them to have this peace that would make it possible for them to come together. Grace asked, what case has stuck with me that I can't stop thinking about? And I'll say, I think about the Marsha and Sylvia and Stonewall episode a lot. That ended up becoming more of a history episode than a true crime one. But as far as a more true crime episode that sticks with me is, I think about the John Juca case a lot. For one, I'm pretty sure he was wrongfully convicted, and that's just heartbreaking. And two, his mom, I mean, she would do anything for her kids. She really did more than I think I would have to try to prove my son didn't get a fair trial. So that case really stands out to me. Okay, speaking of parenting, let's do Bonnie's question next. Bonnie is the host of the Writing About Crime show, which you guys should all check out. She asked how covering these cases has affected or influenced my parenting, and I'm going to say they really haven't. I'm aware that the cases I cover are almost all anomalies. And that's not something we necessarily think about all the time, how bad we are at risk assessment. We lose sight of our two-year-old at the park for 20 seconds, and we think they've been kidnapped. But then we put them in a forward-facing car seat to drive them home. One of those things is statistically much more likely to cause injury or death to our child, and it's the one we don't think twice about. We judge parents for having latchkey nine-year-olds while we let our nine-year-old ride in the front seat or be in a house with firearms, both statistically more likely to cause injury or death than being home alone for two hours is going to cause a kidnapping. If I find my fear of the unlikely creeping in, I just look up the statistics. It keeps me from stifling my children, and it also keeps my mammoth two-year-old rear-facing in his car seat. Emily had an interesting question that I had to think about for a while. She asked, what is the best reaction you have received to a particular episode, and what is the worst reaction? I know we tend to focus on the negative and not the positive, but I honestly can't think of a negative reaction to a particular episode that really hits me as that bad. People might not like how I pronounce things or how I frame things. Sometimes they want to point out something I got wrong, but that's not necessarily a negative unless they're rude in how they express it. I mean, I think I react more strongly in the moment to a negative reaction than a positive one, but then I also turn the page more quickly and move on because sitting here thinking about this question, I can think almost only of positive experiences. 
the Marsha and Sylvia episode and the Upstairs Lounge arson episode. I researched and wrote both, and people were happy to see a podcast focusing on crimes against the LGBTQ plus community. Then with the Springfield Three, a family member of Cheryl and Susie contacted me to tell me it was the best coverage she had heard so far. Pretty much any time I have an episode with a mental health angle, at least one listener hears something they needed to hear. The Jamie Fraley episode really stood out this way. My comments about the relationship between chronic illness and social anxiety clicked for some people. And a couple really heard me when I acknowledged that it's exhausting to go to the doctor when you're depressed, but go anyway. The show gets regularly mentioned on social media when people want true crime shows that are respectful about mental health. I'm not the only one out there that does this. The Vanished, The Fall Line, Already Gone have all delved into mental health issues and have done so, so well. I really look up to them. And I'm glad that people think I'm on their level with how I deal with this very sensitive topic that affects so many people. I have two more questions and One is really related to starting a podcast, and it's going to get a little technical, so that's why I stuck it at the end. Tanya actually sent me a bunch of questions related to starting a podcast recently, and I wanted to address one of them here because I do get asked this a lot, both from people wanting to start a podcast and people who started a podcast and are struggling. She wanted to know what equipment that I recommend for quality sound and editing. The first thing I want to say is don't go out and buy a $300 microphone, unless you want to, but you don't need to. For quality sound, the most important thing is your recording space. A lot of people record in their closets since the small space and the hanging clothes keep echoes from hitting the microphone. Even if you don't hear an echo in a space, your mic might pick it up. I record in a small space made from PVC piping and moving blankets. That makes a great pop-up studio space. So I recommend you treat your space first. Then for a microphone, I recommend starting with the ATR2100. It's versatile, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a better microphone at that price point. You can always upgrade later, but I used the ATR2100 for years and loved it. Regardless of what mic you eventually settle on, Look for a dynamic microphone. A lot of people really like how they sound on a condenser microphone, and I get it. But if you're going to be outside of a studio space, you may come to regret buying one. Condenser mics pick up a lot more background noise. If your neighbor is mowing his lawn, your condenser mic will pick it up, whereas a dynamic mic is less likely to. I record in my house. I have people walking around. Unless they're right over me, my microphone doesn't pick them up. I currently use a Rode Procaster, which I love and I would absolutely recommend. But when you're just getting started and you don't want to sink a lot of money into it, I say go with the ATR2100. It is like $60 or $70. Also, turn off your heat or your AC. Yes, we all record hot or cold depending on the season because vents and moving air make background noise. For recording and editing, you can use free programs. You can use GarageBand. You can use Audacity. I used Audacity for years. Personally, I find Hindenburg to be better 
and easier than both. It costs about $95. But if you're trying to keep startup costs under 100 bucks, I would recommend just getting the ATR2100 microphone. It's $60 or $70, and then use the free software. The last question is from Rachel, who is one of the hosts of Yours in Murder. And if you like this question, I have a feeling you're going to like her podcast. She wanted to know if I would rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses. Honestly, duck-sized horses sound like the cutest thing ever, and anyone who would fight them is a monster. With that, I want to thank you all for being here with me through so much this year. I am glad if you're here still listening to Crime Lines. I appreciate the support. I thank everyone who checked out Rusty Hinges, even if it wasn't your thing. Even if you listen to the show and you're like, too many dad jokes, pass. I get it. Just the support for Crime Lines, for Rusty Hinges, for Impact Statement, it has been overwhelming, and I want to thank everybody. Here is to an amazing 2020 for you, for me, and for our podcast relationship that we've been building. (laughs) 